be with you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your holy word, for you yourself, you are the living word. And as we look into the holy scriptures right now, we ask that you would open our hearts to you and that we would open our hearts to the word of God. So we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, I don't know if you saw my title, but I figured if I said the word drama, maybe people would want to come and hear me talk about drama. But I'm not, not really actually talking that much about drama. I'm looking at dramatic irony in the Gospel of John. Now, I, I don't know, I might be betraying my age or my generation, but when I think of the conflict over what actually is irony, I think of that pop song by Alanis Morissette. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? It's like rain on your wedding day. I'm not going to sing it because then people really will leave. But um, it is a, it's, a, it's a horrible song, but it actually sparked this whole um, debate within academic communities because they said, well, Alanis Morissette doesn't actually know what irony is. So then you have people saying, well, this is what irony is. Well, this is what irony is. Well, today we're going to attempt, I will attempt to look at irony in the Gospel of John. And I'm looking not just at blanketed irony. There are a lot of different forms of irony. You can divide it down into situational irony, you know, like the unsinkable ship, the Titanic sinking, that's situational irony. Verbal irony is different. That's saying one thing and meaning another. That would be, for example, if I um, spilled coffee all over my jacket this morning, I'd say, oh, great. It's not great, but I say, oh, great, and it draws a contrast between how awful it really is. Um, So that's verbal irony. Dramatic irony is different. Dramatic irony takes place um, with three different people involved. In dramatic irony, there's an ironist, the person who is setting forth the irony. There's um, the person who's the victim, the butt of the joke. Or um, the person who is unaware. This person is ignorant about what's going on around them. The third person is the observer. The observer has privileged information. And so the observer gets to stand back and see what's happening. And um, it's literally that moment where the observer cannot prevent what is about to happen. And yet the observer wants to shake the person in the story and say, don't do it. It's that moment in a TV show or, heaven forbid, a soap opera where you want to start talking to the TV screen. Don't do it. He doesn't love you, right? We see it classically in theater, Oedipus Rex, that great play by Sophocles where the audience knows all along who Oedipus's parents really are. And he strives, he does everything to run away from this prediction that he will kill his father and marry his mother. So the audience watches with horror, impotent to prevent him from fulfilling his fate. So you see, as he actually does this, he actually kills his father and marries his mother. And in the audience, you're thinking, you're struck by the tragedy. You yourself are in pain because you can't prevent this tragedy from happening. We also see it in some of Shakespeare's plays. I talked last week about Shakespeare. I'll bring it back again. In Othello, 
that great play about jealousy. You see Othello is um, jealous of his wife Desdemona. He's jealous of her affections. He fears that she's having an affair with his friend Cassio. And the jealous Iago, who would like to be uh, more, who's ambitious, who um, is jealous of Cassio and Cassio's um, ability and his favor with Othello, he then sets up this whole situation. He leads Othello on to think that Cassio and Desdemona are having an affair up until that fateful moment when Othello actually murders his own beloved wife. In the audience, you're paralyzed. You're paralyzed. You're kept from preventing what's happening. You see it. You know better. And yet you want to call out to Othello and say, don't do it. We see it too in Romeo and Juliet, right? That beautiful, tragic love story. The young lovers have this plan. Romeo has been exiled. Juliet is waiting for her beloved um, she, they've set up a plan with Friar Lawrence. She will pretend to be dead. She takes the potion. She appears dead. She's buried in the family crypt. And the audience alone knows that the message did not reach Romeo. He thinks that his beloved Juliet is, in fact, dead. And when he sees her there, he takes the poison that he's gotten from an apothecary, and he dies. And we, watching, want to tell him, no, it's all right, she's alive, you can be together, this is the plan. And we can't do anything to prevent it from happening. So that's dramatic irony. Um, In the Gospel of John, we see dramatic irony. And you might say, well, normally when we study scripture, we look at... um, Scripture, we don't look just at literary elements within Scripture. And there are some academics, I want to warn you, this is a disclaimer. Some academics will look only at the literary aspects in the Gospels or in Scripture because they don't believe in the historicity. They think, well, it probably didn't happen like that, so we're just going to study the text itself, and that will be good enough. This is not what we're doing today because we know that the events in the Gospel happened They happened in first century Jerusalem. We know that they are real events, and we believe in their historicity. And so um, knowing that and believing that, we then yet still are free to study the text and say, wow, the Gospel of John itself is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful and an intentional message. I've said this before, not in this forum, but in another, that the Gospel writers really only had a certain amount of space on their papyrus. So they really they had to choose exactly which events in Jesus' life to include in their telling of the gospel. John tells the gospel in a unique way. Each gospel is unique, but you could say that John is a little more unique than the others. John contains material that we don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is often given to people as an evangelistic tool. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever given the gospel of John to someone who was wondering about Jesus? And you said, read this. This is how you'll know more about Jesus. There's a reason why we do that. 
And I would suggest, I'm putting before you today, that the reason why we do that is because I believe the whole gospel moves you, as you're reading it, as you read the whole thing, from a place of disbelief to a place of belief in Jesus. And we could say, yes, it is because it presents the truth about Jesus. But then I ask, well, how exactly does this presentation draw the reader in, draw the reader into faith? It's almost like I want to lift up the curtain and look behind stage and see what's going on. What happens that makes this gospel do that? In the gospel, we have, we begin with this prologue, right? Many of you know, we, we um, read it and preach from it every Christmas, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There are several p- verses, verses 1 through 18 specifically, that give us this privileged information about Jesus. In those verses, the writer John it's as though he's looking directly at us and telling us exactly what he wants us to know theologically about Jesus. This is different from the other gospel writers. The other gospel writers don't start out by telling us privileged information. They might say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but they don't give us this very clear sense of his preexistence, which means his existence at the very beginning of creation. All things were created through him. There was not anything that was made that was not made through him. So we have all of this information, and the privileged information allows us, as the people hearing or reading the gospel, to know more about Jesus than the people in the narrative itself. I don't know if you get that. It's kind of confusing. But we know more than the people in the narrative itself. As the disciples are wondering, who is this man? We know, we say, he's the word. He is God. He's making known who the Father is. This implicit communication between John and the reader, this, hey, I'm going to tell you something about Jesus, actually creates this sense of closeness with John. And we'll see how it plays out in specific examples. I don't know about you, but when you have special information about someone or something, someone tells you a secret, hey, I'm going to tell you a secret, it creates a sense of closeness and intimacy. And what John is doing is he is telling us, hey, I'm going to give you a secret. I'm going to tell you about this Jesus. I'm going to give you more information than the others know. So we might ask, well, why does he do this? Why does John do this? And we can look. We started at the beginning just now. We looked at the prologue, and he does this throughout. He gives us privileged theological information about Jesus through the discourses, through these little asides. But we find out in the end why he does it. And he says this in John 20, 21. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that, by believing, you may have life in his name. That is why John writes his gospel, and that's why he writes it in the way that he writes it. So, I hope that's clear as mud. But now let's look at specific examples in the gospel of John. There are a few specific examples of people who come in contact with Jesus 
who don't have the kind of information that we who have heard the prologue do have. We see first Nicodemus in chapter 3. Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night, and Jesus immediately makes provocative statements. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus hadn't even gotten to ask him a question, and there Jesus is stating this this, um, thought-provoking statement, right? And Nicodemus interprets this literally. Do you remember this about this passage? He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? We hear this. I don't know about you, but I hear that, and I hear him say that, and I'm thinking, Nicodemus, duh. He is not talking literally. This is a theological statement. Get on the same page, right? In that distance, John creates distance between us and Nicodemus. We're distancing ourselves from him when we say, really? Don't you get it? Nicodemus. We wince on his behalf. And his obtuseness only ends up drawing us closer to faith in Jesus. We see it also with the Samaritan woman at the well. She approaches Jesus, and again, he makes provocative statements. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she, once again, just like Nicodemus, interprets it literally. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She doesn't get it. And we think, as we hear her say that, really? He's trying to engage you on a different level. Don't you get it? We wince. We wince at the Samaritan woman, and we draw closer to Jesus. We see this again all throughout the gospel. I had to pick and choose because we couldn't be here all day. But when we look at the end of the gospel, we see it after the resurrection of the dead. We see it especially with two people in the narrative. We see Mary Magdalene. In chapter 20, Jesus has risen. She even went and she told the disciples and Peter and John go running to the tomb to find out what's inside. Peter rushes in. John holds back. Then John goes in and John believes. John seems to be the only one that believes or the first one to believe in the risen Jesus in this gospel. Mary clearly does not believe. She doesn't get it. She is distraught weeping. She asks the angels even, where have they laid him? I don't know where they've laid him. She goes out into the garden and there in the garden she encounters Jesus himself. But she is blind in her grief. She does not recognize him. And we're sitting there saying, open your eyes. We're talking to the TV screen, right? We're saying, come on, Mary, it's good news. You'll get it. Just turn around. Look, open your eyes. Stop crying. Open your eyes and see. And she does. It even says she turns, and she turns twice. We're not really sure about the blocking, as we like to say in theater of this one. She turns, and then she turns again, and then she maybe turns again. She doesn't know in her distress. She doesn't know where she is. She certainly doesn't know who she is. 
But when he calls her by name, she learns, she remembers, she recognizes his voice and the way he calls her by name. Even as she is distraught and disbelieving, unclear about where Jesus is and what has happened to him, we, as we distance ourselves from her, as we have this special knowledge about who Jesus is and what has just happened, we draw closer to Jesus and we draw closer to faith in the risen Christ. Again, a couple of verses later, we see Thomas. Thomas is another one, right? We know, we've already, we've seen the reader, the people hearing the gospel, we've seen the risen Christ already. We know he's, we know it's real. And, G, and Thomas does not believe. And he says, unless I place my hand in his side and my finger in the holes in his hand, I will not believe. I love giving God an ultimatum, right? And there Jesus shows up a week later. We don't even know if, um, if Thomas actually gets to put his hand in Jesus' side and his fingers in, Jesus, in the holes in Jesus' hand. We have distanced ourselves from the doubting Thomas. We have drawn near to faith in Jesus. And there it's so beautiful. Um, Jesus says to Thomas, um, do not disbelieve, but believe. And if I had to block this scene, I would put Jesus here, put Thomas kneeling in front of him, and then I would have Jesus looking out. It's as though Jesus is looking out right to us. Those of us who don't have the opportunity to see and touch the risen flesh of Jesus Christ, it's as though Jesus looks right at us. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So you see, throughout the Gospel of John, John gives us this information, special information about who Jesus is, what he is going to do before he dies on the cross, and then what he has done and how he has been risen from, raised from the dead. He gives us this special information to draw us into faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to look at my um, specific passage that I chose for today. So those, I was just getting into it. Those four were just examples. But the real one, the one that, um, that pierces my heart every time I look at it, is of um, Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Jesus is there in chapter 18 and 19. <laughs> You could say there are like these little seven scenes with Pilate. We know there are seven. We sort of break it up arbitrarily as those studying the text because we see Jesus is inside the praetorium, inside Pilate's house. Pilate has to go out to the Jewish leaders and authorities, and then he goes back in to talk with Jesus. So Pilate goes in and out, back and forth several times. And that breaks it up into these little seven scenes. These whole seven scenes, these, this conversation, this interaction is not present in the Synoptic Gospels. So it's wonderful in John to see this little glimpse into what happens in this trial. So Pilate himself is essentially the governor of the Jewish people, right? He is the one who governs Judea. 
he is in the place in succession of Herod the Great. When Herod the Great's kingdom was broken up, it was given to his four sons, I believe. And then one of them, the one who was supposed to be king over Judea, the king of the Jews, if you will, for the name the Jews came from their location in Judea. That particular one was um, a bad ruler. And he was really only to report to Rome anyway. Herod the Great was only reporting to um, others. So we see that he has been replaced by a Roman governor. Pilate holds the title, essentially, of governor of the Jews or king of the Jews. And there he is asking Jesus in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? And we sit there. We sit there and we say, of course he is. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the one sent from the Father. We know more than Pilate. And so as Pilate continues to engage with Jesus, we distance ourselves from Pilate. And we gradually distance ourselves from his eventual rejection of Jesus. We see again, he asks, Jesus a question. Do you say this of your own accord? He commandeers the air. Excuse me. Pilate asks Jesus a question and Jesus then returns with a question, right? Pilate has asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus returns with, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Jesus there, it's beautiful. He is the true Lord, the true king, the true governor, the true judge. And he has taken control of this interrogation, this mock trial. He is in control and in authority over it. John intends that Pilate's misunderstanding about the higher nature of Jesus' kingship, John intends that this misunderstanding would spur us on towards grasping and believing in Jesus' kingship to distance ourselves from Pilate. We see it again. Pilate asks, where are you from? He's afraid. He's unsure. But we know where Jesus is from because we've read the prologue. He is the preexistent one from the Father. He talks about authority. Pilate says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus replies, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus speaks truly. He is truly the one sent from the Father. He has authority over all creation. He has authority even over Pilate. We know this. Pilate is unaware. And we distance ourselves from Pilate. I talked about those seven scenes. Within Jewish thought, Um, We usually, as Americans, Westerners, influenced by Greek thought, we usually assume that the most important idea is the one that's either first or last, but usually last. And in Hebrew thought, that's not the case. The most important idea very often is at the very center of a string of ideas. And it took me a while to understand this, but as I studied Um, Hebrew poetry, and then also it's so influential in the New Testament as well, you see that the center idea is very key if there's a clear structure. At the very center of these seven scenes between Jesus and Pilate, going back and forth, 
we see that Jesus is mocked and scourged. And there at that very moment in that scene, we see um, the pinnacle, I would, I would say it, or uh, one of the pinnacles leading to the greatest pinnacle of irony in the Gospel of John. There, these Gentile soldiers are mocking Jesus. They have dressed him in a purple robe and in a crown of thorns. They hit him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. They use, remember, that's verbal irony. They use those words to say, you're really not a king now, are you? Hail, king of the Jews. They're mocking him. Hail, king of the Jews. They don't mean it. And we, watching, know the truth. We know the truth that Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews. And the irony hits us. They don't even know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't, they don't realize what they're doing. The verbal irony and the dramatic irony here combine to cause us to fall to our feet before this king of the Jews, that even as they are mocking, hail, king of the Jews, we are in our hearts saying with true feeling and true meaning, hail, This is the king of the Jews. All hail. And the one that we hail, this one, is uh, the one who would die. In John, Jesus' humiliation is in fact also his glorification. If you were to do a plot diagram, I've done some of these before, If you were to map out, you know, what happens in the Gospel of John, you'd have to say that the very low point would be Jesus' death and crucifixion. As I said a couple weeks ago, it doesn't get any worse than that. That is the low point in John's Gospel. And yet John continually uses language, Jesus uses language, to talk about that low point that doesn't make any sense to the world doesn't make any sense to us. He talks about when he is lifted up. And Jesus, when he dies on the cross, he is in fact spatially lifted up high over those around him. He is exalted even in his humiliation, even in torture and death. Jesus is exalted. So how is it that This low point in the story is seen by God as his own high point. Here is the greatest irony of all. I can't think of a better image, so I'll have to tell you one that that I found on the Internet. But when looking at irony and trying to figure out what exactly is irony, there's this wonderful picture that shows a fire hydrant on fire. Right? I can't think of a better way to explain it. A fire hydrant on fire. It's not supposed to be on fire. That is exactly what happens at this low moment, which is also the high moment. The eternal one, the one who could not die, is not supposed to die, is here in John, glorified and lifted up. And yet that high point, that high moment, 
that moment when the Son of Man is lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, that moment when um, he is lifted up from the earth, and as it says in chapter 12, he will draw all people to himself, that moment when the Father glorifies Jesus in answer to Jesus' prayer in chapter 17, that moment of glorification and exaltation is actually also a moment of humiliation, of service, of suffering, of dying. And the seeming depths of the shame of the cross is in fact the apex of God's own self-giving love for us. So it's at that point when we say, Hail, King of the Jews. Let's pray. Hail, King of the Jews. Jesus, you are our King. We know that you've died for us. And it is a beautiful thing. And we say yes. We say yes, let that be for us. Yes, let that be for me. Because I need it. We give you glory and honor. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. There should be a lot. <laughs> we have time for a lot. I guess that, that helps me in when I'm, I guess you'd say, on the cross to realize that maybe I'm being lifted up to the a higher point of closeness to Christ. Glorification, even in suffering. The whole gospel is, I mean, God's power is made perfect in weakness. I mean, exactly. I mean, there's a whole, it's all turned upside down. Up is down and down is up. Down is up. It's, Exactly. Yeah, the author himself has entered the story yeah. to die for the creation. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> anyone else? David, went up here. That, uh, you know, people who are drawn to him immediately when he's lifted up there are the wrong people. I mean, it's the people who are the keepers of, uh, you know, from, from our perspective, the, the tradition and the reason conversation and the scripture who put him up there. Yeah. And it's the thief fully exposed and the Roman centurion, John Wayne, right, who uh, is the symbol of everything against God's people. Right? The oppressor of God's people who said, wow, you know, remember me. Mm-hmm. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's that sense in which the thief on the cross, the criminal on the cross, has the eyes to see. And the eyes to see that Jesus, this dying man on a cross, dying not just um, the death of a criminal, but really the death of a slave, a shameful death, and even as the Jews believed, a death upon whom a, de- a curse was given. You could not die that w- You know, if you died that way, then you were cursed. It's even said in Deuteronomy that they don't leave the bodies. They didn't leave the bodies on the cross because of a curse, because of the sense that a curse would be on the land. That there's this sense in which Jesus there, to have the eyes to see, and, we, and Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, the eyes to see that this is, in fact, the king 
um, the one worthy of all of our, our worship. Is, uh, that's a gift that only God can give. 